I have to tell you, I'm still shaking my head just a little bit over the past few weeks because Easter, right, Easter is one of the best of celebrations. But I, I do want to stop before we really get into the text this morning and uh, just say thank you to all of you. I know it takes an army of volunteers to do what has been done over the past few weeks. I looked at the numbers. I don't know if this is correct or not. I'd have to go back, back a little bit further, but I believe last weekend uh, was one of the largest Easter's ever in the history of this church. I can't find any that's bigger, which is just incredible. Just incredible. Um, but it's really the effort of an incredible volunteer team, which has been you guys. It took volunteers to get all of the staging done. It took volunteers, extra volunteers working with kids and making coffee and making breakfast and saying hello to people as early as 7 a.m. So from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you so much for the way that you have led well by serving well. Church, I appreciate you. Thank you guys so much. You know, for a lot of people every single year, Easter is the starting point in a faith journey. Right, so start, it's, not, it's not the end point. It's not where we stop. It doesn't mean you've arrived. It, it's, it's a starting point. It's where you raise your hand and you say, I'm placing Jesus as Lord of my life. I'm surrendering my entire life to him. But if that was you over the past few weeks, past few months, past few years, like that's not all there is to it. Just, it's, a, it's a starting point. Amy and I had the opportunity to have dinner with Richard and Heather. And Richard runs for fun. Like, he, he likes it. He just, like, I don't get it. Like, I really don't understand it. But he, he runs for fun. He's part of Team Woodside. You need to be sure next week to check out. There's going to be a table in the lobby. Team Woodside's going to be there. You're going to see the bright yellow shirts. I have one. I'm not going to wear mine. It'd look like a half shirt, and it would be so disturbing for everybody. So I'm not going to do that to you. Um, but anyway, I was talking to Richard at dinner, and I said, Richard, how did you start running? And he said, well, I, I have this app on my phone. I'd never ran before as a young guy growing up. I, I started just, uh, you know, as an older guy, I just started, not like he's an old, anyway, it doesn't, just, he didn't run as a kid. And so he was like, I got this Couch to 5K, you guys know the Couch to 5K app, right? He said, so the Couch to 5K app, I, you literally just get off the couch, and you start to walk, and you listen, you follow the directions, you just walk. Oh, you heard me walking, didn't you? Did you hear all that? So he said, you just walk, and then you go from walking to walking and jogging. And then you go from walking to jogging a lot more. And then you go to jogging to walking. And then before you know it, he goes, you're, you're running longer distances than you ever thought possible. He goes, that's, that's kind of how I've done it. It's really what the faith journey is, isn't it? The faith journey is you start by walking. You start by walking, and before you know it, your faith journey just continues. Listen, if you place your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized, you need to start with that. That's one of the steps of obedience. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. If you've never been baptized before, please fill out a communication card and make sure you turn it in to us. We would love to have a conversation with you about that because when you believe that happens here, right? That happens privately. That happens quietly in this room or in your car or in the, in the, in the living room at home. But it's, it's a very private thing that happens. Baptism is a public declaration of what Jesus has done there. And so we want to give you the opportunity to celebrate. But guys, I'm, I'm excited about this next sermon series, the sermon series that we're starting today, because it's a sermon series that lets you, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for 60 years or you're new to the faith, to really go back to the Word of God and to say, I, I want this Word to transform my life. 
I want to go from just walking along to really running the race that the Lord has called us to. And before I get into this series, I want to talk about this book for a moment because I know we have a lot of skeptics out there. Maybe you used to be a skeptic. Maybe, maybe you're one right now. Or maybe you know skeptics. I just want you to have some tools when you're talking about the Bible. This Bible was written by more than 40 authors. There's 66 books in this. Now, we call them books, but that's misleading, isn't it? They're not really books. They're, they're manuscripts. They're ancient manuscripts. This is full of 66 ancient manuscripts. It was written over a time period of 1,200 years. And yet there's one meta-narrative. There's one big story throughout the whole thing. It's tying creation to new creation through Jesus Christ. Through the entire thing, that's the meta-narrative that's taking place. Now, anytime you look at an ancient manuscript, you always need to go back, and you need to see how many copies do you have. That makes sense, right? If you, if you have a document that's 1,000 years old, and there's only one, and you don't have any, well, how do you know if it's authentic or not? Like, you don't, right? There's no way to tell if it's authentic or not. So, like, Homer's Iliad. How many of you guys have read Homer's Iliad? Raise your hands. All right, this weirds me out, because first service was the same. Like, a quarter of the hands went up. Y'all, in Oklahoma, they learn you a little bit, and you got to read some Homer down there in Oklahoma. Like, they learn you to read Homer and his Iliad. Like they, so anyway, Homer's Iliad, you probably know the stories of like, you know, Athens and Troy and all, right? Yeah, I mean, you guys know the story. We have from Homer's Iliad 1,700 copies in existence still today. That's how we can tell the story because we know this. We have 1,700 copies of those ancient manuscripts. Or let's take Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was leader in Rome. He had all the might and all the power of Rome to protect what he wrote down. They, they called it the Gaelic Wars. He wrote this book called The Gaelic Wars. We have 210 copies of The Gaelic Wars in existence today. So if you wanted to get me a present, like something to say, hey, welcome to the church, like that'd be pretty cool. Like I'd be pretty pumped about that. 210 copies of The Gaelic Wars. Now think about this, 210 copies. You ready for this? When it comes to the Greek New Testament, just the Greek New Testament, not talking about all the Old Testament uh, manuscripts we have, just the Greek New Testament, 210 for Julius Caesar, there's 5,800 copies of the Greek. It's almost like God wanted to say, I want the evidence to be so overwhelming, people can't possibly debate it. And that's not even the part that really blows my mind. As a guy who studies this for a living, as a guy who reads this and dives in, like, this is my job, this is what I get, here's the part that really blows my mind. It's always important to go back and to see how close to the original are the manuscripts. That makes sense? Like, because you're, you're looking at a copy of a copy. We don't have anything that Homer wrote down by his own hand. We don't have that, right? We have copies of that in the manuscripts, and we see how close they are together, how similar they are. So you want to get as, as close to the original as possible. Well, when we look at our New Testament, we have copies from as early as the second century after Jesus. As early as the second century. When you look at the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint for the Old Testament, we go to the second century before Christ. And that, I mean, to me, that just is mind-blowing, but you don't just want to look at that. You don't just want to look at, at what do a people say about themselves. That's valuable. You do want to, but I've heard a saying somewhere, history is written by the victors, 
Have you, I don't know who wrote that, but someone wrote that. History is written, and I think there's truth to that. But, but I think you have to look at not only are what are you saying about yourself, but what are others saying about you? And that's why this picture is so important. Look at this picture. This is the Tel Dan inscription. This was created in roughly 870 BC, 870 years before Jesus Christ, this was created. It's in ancient Aramaic, and it wasn't even discovered until 1993-94. So if you're a young person looking for a cutting-edge job, I mean, you could do computers, I guess, or you could go into biblical archaeology, because this is cool. Like, I don't know, you guys aren't looking near as impressed as I was, because here's what this is. King David's reign is written in our Bible, right? We know all about King David, but there was no outside source really corroborating that story until this. The Tel Dan inscription is all about King David's reign, and it was, it was created 870 years on this piece of stone before Jesus was even born. Isn't that incredible? Like, that blows my mind. When you look at um, Josephus, you hear me as I preach, a lot of times I'll talk about the historian Josephus. You've heard me say that already, right? You've heard me say that and, and quote Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish guy born in Jerusalem. And he fought against the Romans. Like everybody else, he lost against the Romans. And so the Romans imprisoned him. And then they said, we're going to give you a job, Josephus. Your job is to write history for the emperor. You get to write history for Rome. That's your job. Careful what you write. Right? I mean, that, that was it. You get to write Rome's history. Rome's history in Israel. And when you read the works of Josephus, you see everything going on in the history of Israel at the time. And it was protected by the might of Rome. And in his writings, you'll find information about this Jewish carpenter from a place called Nazareth. And you're going to read about his work and his ministry. You'll read about his death. Then you're going to read about his early church and their belief in the resurrection. And so again, you start to see all these works coming together. The scribes, let me talk about the Hebrew scribes just real briefly. The Hebrew scribes wanted to make sure that we had an authentic canon. And so what they would do is they would read a Hebrew word out loud and the scribes would write down a single word. And they would go word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If a mistake was made, it was thrown into the fire and it was burned. They didn't want any copies existing that were incorrect. They didn't want any false teachings. At the end, they would count how many words, how many letters were there to make sure nothing was added and nothing was taken away. Only then was it released. That's why we can have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and they all line up. There are no discrepancies. If we had more time, I would start talking to you about the Dead Sea Scrolls and what an incredible find that was. I've actually seen that with my own eyes. I've been able to examine it and say, there it is. There's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Absolutely mind-blowing. But here's the deal. It's almost like God said, 1,200 years it took, 66 ancient manuscripts, more than 40 authors. I'm up to something. And I don't, I don't want you to miss it. I want you to be crystal clear on what I'm trying to tell you, and I don't want there to be any question of its truth. That's what this sermon series is about. So I want you to take your Bibles and open up to Psalm 119 this morning. Psalm 119. 
We're going to start in verse 9. As you're turning there, I do want to be clear. The psalmist doesn't write Psalm 119 to say, let me bring glory and adoration to the Bible. That's not the point of it. The point is for us to, to worship and adore God and God alone. And so the goal of this entire series is for all of us to read and study and live in such a way that God is glorified through all that we do. Right? That's our, our goal. But we struggle. See, in your pocket somewhere, you probably, oh, my Bible app just gave me a notification. Did you see that? How timely is that? If you pull out your smartphone or have it close, mine's dirty. I need a new case because it collects all my little sand in there, which is, this, and I did this in the first couple services. I'll say, ah, it does work. See, I can just blind everybody right through here. Anyway, the reason I, I bring this up is you have in your hand power right here. Look at this picture. This is the Apollo space rocket. This is the one that went to the moon. In your hand with your smart device, you have thousands of more computing power than they had on the rocket that went to the moon. You realize that, right? And I would make a joke about, yeah, but their apps never crash. But I watched the movie of Tom Hanks and their apps did crash. And that was, a, that was a mess. Anyway, when you look at your phone, we've reduced thousands of computing power times more than the Apollo space missions. We've reduced it to, I can take a selfie send a text, and play words with friends. That's pretty much what we do with our phones, isn't it? We don't even call on them hardly anymore. Like, we, 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 we've reduced all that computing power to something so simple. And I think a little bit that's what we've done with this. I think we've taken something with power, and we've reduced it and taken the teeth out of it. And all of a sudden said, this is really about let's just have a verse that's a pretty nice saying that we can put on our wall. And there's so much more to it, my friends. So much more to it. Let's go to the Word of God. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to start by reading the entire passage, and then I'd like us to take time by picking it apart. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. The Word of God says this, how can a man, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare are the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So the first thing we're going to see is a big question. I think it's a question that not only are we going to wrestle with this morning, but I think for the whole series, this sets us up well. Here's what it says. It says, how can a young man or a young woman keep his way or her path pure? And I debate, like, is it pure or is it pure? Like, I don't know, is it an Oklahoma-Michigan thing or is it just two ways to say it? And I'm just letting you know how my mind works. Like, so I was so distracted with that this week. How can we keep our way pure, pure? pure. I think we're pure. Anyway, it's a weird word. Here's basically what we're saying. We're saying, God, how can I stand before you blameless? Isn't that what we want to know? How, how do I stand before you blameless? How do I stand in front of you at the end of the day and know that I'm on the right path? How do I know that I'm doing the right thing? In wisdom literature, it talks about wise and foolish paths, doesn't it? 
why you see it again and again and again. It's a common theme. Jesus uses the same theme when he talks about the wise and the foolish builders. There's wise and there's foolish. And so what we're really asking is, Jesus, how do I know that I am living life wisely? That's my question. How do I live life wisely? How do I lead my family wisely? How do I handle my conflicts at work wisely? How do I handle my time, talent, my treasure wisely? How do I, life, Lord, how do I do life in such a way that I'm a wise person, that I'm coming before you clean and pure? How do I do that? Because God, that's my question. That's what I want. And the answer is found in the same verse, isn't it? Look at the answer. It says this, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. By guarding it according to his word, which brings us to the big idea today. You hear me say that all the time, and if you're new to Woodside, I want you to know this, that at all of our Woodside campuses, we all preach our sermons in a way that says we're going to use big idea preaching. Big idea preaching is this, we always start with the text first, right? We start with, not with a thought, not with a question, not with a pop culture reference. We start with the Word of God first. We read the Word of God, and then we say, what is the main idea of what God is trying to teach us here? What, that's the big idea. Everything else that I say this morning should point to that big idea. Does that make sense? Everything else should point to that big idea. So if you've been daydreaming, this is the part you need to listen to right here. The big idea is staying pure means guarding our lives with God's Word. It means guarding our lives with God's word. Guarding our life. Guarding our lives is active. It's not passive. And unfortunately, I think many in the church, we spend our lives passively pursuing God. I, I think we do. I think we are passive in our faith. But we're supposed to be active in our faith. Guarding, actively. Guard. In Ephesians, it talks about uh, spiritual armor that we're supposed to put on. You don't put on armor to sit on your couch at home and eat ho-hos and watch TV. That's not why you put on armor. You put on armor because you want to be active. You put on armor because you're ready to go. You don't put on all that football gear before a football game to sit in the stands and eat popcorn, right? You put it on because you're going into battle. You put it on because it's go time. That's why you put it on in the first place. And here we see that we're supposed to actively guard. How do we do that? How do we actively guard? Our first point this morning is Guarding one's life is only possible with a wholehearted commitment to God's word. A wholehearted commitment to God's word. Look at verse number 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When I first memorized this, it was from the NIV, and I, I memorized that I've hidden your word. In my, did anyone else memorize that version? I've hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But first, these verses echo the Jewish Shema. The Jewish Shema is the, the prayer. It's pretty much the, the basis of all Jewish prayer. Every morning and every night, Jews would pray the Shema. And it basically says, it's from Deuteronomy 6. It basically says, Yahweh, everything I am, is yours. My mind, my motivation, my heart, everything I am is chasing after and pursuing you. Everything I am is driving towards you. And this is set up in the same type of structure to say, God, everything I am is yours. Now, traditionally, the word was translated hidden. I've hidden your word in my heart. Remember I just talked about that? Hidden your word. 
I, I like this translation way better. I think it's more appropriate. Because Hebrew words tend to give us word pictures, don't they? Like they, they tend to be word pictures. And the word picture here is I've taken your word and I've kept it as a treasure. And I've piled it up and I've stored it up and I've amassed it to where it is. So it's not like I lock it in this little room and I hold it there. But I'm taking all this treasure and piling it up. Why? What's the purpose? So that I won't sin against you. That's why I'm storing I'm storing it to be used. So when I first heard this preached, the pastor used it as a tool to say you should memorize lots of Scripture. And memorizing Scripture is good, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about this holistic lifestyle. By holistic lifestyle, I mean when you're, when you're driving down the road, the Word of God should be circling through your mind. When you sit down and you eat with the family, the Word of God should be right there. When you're working, the Word of God should be there. When you're playing, whatever it is that you're doing, the Word of God should be right there. It should be stored up to where there's no other choice besides to pour out of our lives so that we don't sin against Him. That's the whole point of this passage to begin with. We understand, don't we? It uses the word wholehearted. We, we understand wholehearted. Don't we? You and I, we get it. We embrace wholehearted. We want wholehearted in business. Don't we? You don't want to work for a company that halfway passively does something. You want that wholehearted, they're going to do it, they're chasing excellence. Your sports teams, I was going to talk about the Tigers, and because uh, baseball season, and I looked at the standings yesterday, and then I thought it's a long season, let's talk about the Tigers later. We don't, we don't need to talk about that right now. Um, in our art, we also want wholehearted, don't we? When I was in my early 20s, I was teaching school, and I, I went with the music teacher on a field trip. We were taking our kids from inner city Tulsa to the ballet. There was a European dance troupe that came through, and we thought, man, these kids, they've never, they've never seen anything like this. We're talking inner city Tulsa's diverse, uh, probably more Hispanic students than anything, uh, but it was just diverse. We had a lot of diversity, and they certainly had never seen anything like the ballet, and we were like, this is going to be awesome. And we got to watch not a performance, not even a rehearsal. We got to watch their workout, right? So we're watching the workout, and then they sat the kids down. There was a question-answer time. Here's what impressed me. This guy, he's about this tall, and he had legs this big around, which is weird. I know that I paid attention to that, but I'm like, man, this dude's a beast, you know. And he's, anyway, he, he steps up, and he's talking to the kids, and they asked a question. They said, what's your, what's your normal work day look like? I'm sure they're thinking, man, this might be the job for me because my parents work hard, you know. So what do you, and here's what this guy said. He said, well, my, my days during the week are light. You know, normally they're only 12-hour days. The weekend is when we really have to work hard. He said, we, and he's drenched in sweat at this point. You know, I mean, he is just dripping in sweat. He goes, so we, we get up and we start with workouts in the morning and we stretch and we study and then we go into rehearsals and then we rehearse and then we, we stretch and we study and then we go and we have another workout or afternoon workout and we stretch study and then we have performance. And so that's just kind of how it works. It's mentally fatiguing. It's physically just draining. It beats your body up. That's why... You know, dance tends to be a young person thing just because of how physically demanding it is on the body. And my takeaway is, yeah, that's what we expect. We want wholehearted in our art, don't we? We want our musicians to be excellent. We want our people doing dance or theater or whatever. We want it excellent. Baseball, business, we want it excellent. So doesn't it make sense that if we're talking about something with eternal implications that we would want to do it wholeheartedly as followers of Jesus. 
Does that make sense? With that said, men, there's a men's retreat coming up. Y'all can get signed up. I'm going to be there. Just so you know, I'll be the MC for the time. Kip will be there. He'll be playing his guitar. So you're going to be represented well from the stage. But I need you to sign up. If the men are daydreaming, ladies, will you get them signed up today? That would be awesome. Like, get your guys signed up for the men's retreat. It is coming up soon. So we need to take a wholehearted approach to the Word. But number two, we also need to align ourselves with God and His Word. We need to align ourselves with His Word. Look what Scripture says in verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Worshiping the Lord and being a learner. Being a learner. You know, if, if you're a disciple, you're a learner, right? Disciple means follower. We want to follow Jesus so closely that the dust from his sandals falls on our face. We want to be a better reflection of Jesus today than we were yesterday because we have not arrived. Now, if you've arrived, you're dead. You're no longer here, right? We, we have not arrived. Every single person in this room, we have room to grow. We have room where we want to become more like Christ today than we were yesterday. It is a process for every single one of us. And look how we start. We start that with worship. Look what it says. It says, blessed are you, O Lord. Before you go any further, just stop and declare who you're talking to. Lord, you are blessed. You are holy. You are majestic. You are mighty. You are righteous. You are just. Declare who it is you're talking to. And then it gets to the part of being a learner. We stink at that. We're awful at being learners. I mean, we got to be honest. We are. We're awful at it because what we want to do is we don't want to be a learner. We want to be a teacher. We don't want to be a new hire. We want to be the VP of the company. We don't want to be the rookie. We want to be the all-star. Isn't that true? We really struggle with what it means to be a learner. But there's this place where we say, I want to be a learner. And that's more than saying one plus one equals two. The learner is saying, God, I see your ways. And when I see your ways, I'm going to align my ways with yours. I'm going to change me to be a better reflection of you. Based on what your holy word says, I'm going to change my life to get my life in line with you. That's what I'm going to do. And then look at the next part. It gets more challenging. Look what it says. This is with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. So not only am I going to align my life, I'm going to start to talk about it. Jesus says this. Jesus says, the mouth only speaks what? Thanks, Amy, because no one else participated at all. My wife is so good because she's heard the sermon like five times now. <laughs> We're going to do this again. Jesus said, the mouth only speaks what fills the heart. Let's try it again. Jesus said, the mouth only speaks what? Fills the heart. You nailed it right there. That's what he said. The mouth only speaks what fills the heart. What you're thinking about, what you're processing here, what you're consumed with is what you talk about. So what if, put a little tape recorder on you tomorrow morning, because we're talking, aren't we, all the time. You wake up, you're talking. You go to breakfast, you're talking. You go to school or work, you're, you're, you're talking. Lunch, you're talking. After work, you're talking. Like we're talk, 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 talk. All the time we talk. If I recorded everything you said tomorrow and I handed it to a person that's never met you, what would they say you're consumed with? Would they say you're consumed with, with gossip, with work, with school, with 
plans, with stress? Or would they say you're consumed with God and His holy word? What would they say you're consumed with? And if that's not a kick in the pants, this is. Look what this says, verse 14. It says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight. You should circle that word in your Bible. I delight as much as in all riches. Delight. See, here's where I struggle. And I'm just going to be very transparent with you just for a moment. When we moved from the west side of the state to the east side of the state, I took all of my health and all my diet, and I just, like, threw it out the window. Like, I didn't even care. And, and I wish I was like normal people. Normal people can eat a scoop of ice cream. Not me. I can eat a bowl of ice cream. I can eat four scoops of ice cream every night before bed and have to wear husky pants. Like, that's, that's me, and I'm just being very real with you. And I know that's not good. Like, I know that's not the way. I know that it does not help me be a better shepherd. It does not help me be a better pastor, but may, I tell you what's hard. What's hard is to look truth in the eye and say, all right, I got to cut the sugar out. For real, I'm being serious. Like tomorrow, not today, but tomorrow, I'm going to cut it out. I'm giving accountability. If you see pictures of me on the Facebook munching up the ice cream, you got permission to call me out, right? Because I, I got to quit. I got to stop. Now, knowing what's right is different than doing what's right. But doing what's right is different than what the psalmist just said. The psalmist said, I delight. Okay, I don't delight in not eating ice cream. I don't delight in that at all. Tomorrow night, when we're sitting at home and the fire's going, because we're in Michigan, spring in Michigan means turn the fire on, right? And so as we're sitting by the fire and we're watching our shows, I, I'm not going to be taking delight. I'm going to be grumpy, Right? I mean, I'm just being real. I'm being very honest with you, you know, and I'll get through it and I'll get there and I'll get me healthy again. But I'm looking at the psalmist and I'm going, oh my goodness, do you see the beauty of this? Do you hear how awesome this is? Not only do I see your ways, I'm going to align my ways with your ways. And not only am I going to do that, I'm going to speak about your ways. Not only am I going to speak about, I'm going to take delight in it. That's so good. That's so good. But at church, you know what we do? We get going down the right path, and then mission drift happens. You, you understand mission drift, don't you? Mission drift can happen in your company or your organization. It's where you, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You've got your mission, and you get distracted with culture, and you kind of get off mission a little bit. That's mission drift. It can happen in a campus at Woodside. It could happen at Woodside Bible Church. If all of a sudden we say we are grounded in theology and in the Word of God, and all of a sudden we didn't care about that as much because we care about culture, that's, that's mission drift. It doesn't just happen with churches, though. It happens with you. It happens with me. When we know what we're supposed to be doing, but all of a sudden culture, and we don't understand why, we don't understand, but we just know it happens. We just start to get off track a little bit. You know what happens, don't you? Watch. It looks, it looks a lot like this. To answer that question, we set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone, simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this, or would you? After just three beeps, and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group. But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please.
Okay, now she's alone. The crowd is gone and nobody is watching her except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Great, thanks. thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? <laughs> we kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. And slowly but surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Here to explain what's going on. Yeah, that's what happens, isn't it? And we all want to think to ourselves like, oh, I'd never do that. Like, there's no way. I yes, you would. You know how I know you would? Watching a church service sometime. It can be packed. There can be that. Let it be like somewhere like the Troy campus, you know, where there's, there's thousands of people there. And what, all it takes is three people in the front row to start to stand up during a song when you thought, I, no one said stand up, but all of a sudden you're just like, I guess I'll stand too. Everyone else just stood. I got to stand. Or watch when no one has said you may be seated. The first three people in the front row, they sit down and you're like, I guess this is a sitting time now, you know, and you just, you just follow. But that's a fine thing. But what happens with your faith is dangerous, isn't it? Because in your faith, all of a sudden, you stop following the Word of God if you're not intentional, and you start to drift away from what the Word has called us to. We've got to be very intentional with this. Which brings us to our very last point this morning. We want to examine how guarding our lives with God's Word also requires us to use it in everyday life. Look at uh, verse number 15 and 16. The Bible says, I will meditate I will, you should just circle that word right now. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Meditate. Meditate does not translate to mean skim it. It does not translate to mean read it really fast and don't pay attention to it. That's not what it translates. It translates to mean I want to consume it and I want to take it in and I want it just to roll around in my soul for a little bit. That's what it means to meditate. It means I'm going to slow down. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to think through it. I'm going to process what I'm reading. That's what meditate is. And then do you see how it says, it says that I will not forget your word. This never happened to me, but have you ever met people who forget to eat sometimes? Like I had this guy I worked with, it'd be four o'clock in the afternoon. He'd look up, he'd go, oh, I forgot to eat lunch. And I looked at him, I said, I never forgot to eat lunch. Or breakfast or dinner, or dinner snacks. I never forgot any of those. Like, I, I just can't fathom what it would mean to forget, you know? And maybe that's you. Maybe, like, sometimes you're like, oh, I just, I forgot to eat. I don't understand. Now, I have 
not eaten before, stop it, believe it or not, I have not eaten before, sometimes intentionally. I've not eaten because I've got meetings or I've got, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, whatever, or sometimes it's I'm fasting. I'm spending that time in prayer and devotion, and when you spend time not eating for one meal, you may not really notice, but go two, three, or four. All of a sudden, you go two, three, four, five meals that you've skipped, you might get a little fussy, right? You might get a little bit grumpy. You might all of a sudden get these hunger pains in your stomach. Your head might start to hurt. That's with physical consumption. Doesn't it make sense that spiritually we should be the same? You were never meant to come in on Sunday morning and hear a 33-minute sermon and then say, oh, no, I'm good for the week now. Like, I got enough food to sustain me. This is about every day application. I'm not going to forget. I'm going to meditate on your word. You see that drift happens so easily where culture starts to sneak in and we get busy, we get distracted. But Jesus, Jesus gave us a way to remember, didn't he? We believe that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And the night before he was arrested, or the night he was arrested, Jesus brought his disciples together. They had the Passover meal together. And after they ate, Jesus took the bread. Do you remember this? He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave thanks. And then he looked at his disciples, and he said, this bread is like my body. This is going to be broken for you. It's going to be broken for all so that sins can be forgiven. And he said, when you eat, I want you to remember Don't drift. For 2,000 years, we have continued this process of remembering so that we don't drift. Then he took the cup. He said, this cup is like it. It's like my blood that will be poured out for you and for all so that sins can be forgiven. And when you drink, I I want you to remember. When you eat, when you drink, I want you to remember. Our ushers are going to come forward at this time. Um... As we take communion this morning, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the elements, take the bread, take the cup, and I just want you to hold on to it. We'll take it all together in just a little bit, but I want you to have time to stop and reflect on everything that you've heard, on what it means to store up His Word in your heart, of what it means to be intentional about being wholehearted in your faithfulness, about what it means to daily apply His Word in your life. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, this is when you stop right now and you confess that sin to your heavenly Father. We don't want to drift. We want to stay laser focused on being the church that he's called us to.